Now, let's get into the Word of God. Let's open to John chapter 3. We're continuing in one of the most famous conversations that's ever been had. Nicodemus, a Pharisee and a ruler of the Jews, a teacher of Israel, has uh, come to Jesus in the middle of the night, and they're having a conversation. We're going to pick up this conversation in verse 9, and we'll read 9 through 15. I'll read the scripture, pray, and we'll study God's word together. This is God's word. Hear it. Nicodemus said to him, that is Jesus, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know. And bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I, have, if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. This is God's word. May he write its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Let's pray. God, Father Almighty, we do ask that you would speak to us by your word, that you would, by the power of your Holy Spirit, reveal to people who are deceived that they actually don't have the life of Christ in them. Pray for those who do have the life of Christ but are doubting the love of God for them. Would you assure them? Would you clear away all false assurances and would you give us the one true rock-solid foundation of our faith? Father, now, would you call us out of our wandering? Jesus, now come and cast out all fear. And Spirit, now preach the Son to our deafness. Do it for your glory and the good of our neighbors. In Christ's name, amen. All right, so we're getting right into it this week. Bo did a phenomenal job. He knocked it out of the park last week in the first bit of this, com- of this famous conversation between Nicodemus and Jesus. And to remind us, we, what we saw last week was sh- straight from the mouth of Jesus that the key to all spiritual life is regeneration, or the key to all spiritual life is being born again. Now, we're really familiar in America with that phrase, born-again Christian. That's really like a super, super redundant phrase. Uh, That's like saying uh, an unmarried bachelor. Because to be a Christian is to be born again. Now, I've heard it said that a pastor's job is to over and over again assure Christians of their salvation. Now, in order to do that, and that's what we will be doing this morning, assuring of salvation, in order to do that, we need to clear away and do away with all false assurances. And there are many. 
and they spring up like weeds. We need to get rid of those false assurances and we need to get clear what it means to be a Christian. And in this, in this, we need not my thoughts, we need not our thoughts together collectively. We, need, we don't need the latest like Harvard Business Review or magazine or social research, but rather what we need are God's thoughts as he has revealed them to us in his word. And so we're going to continue in this famous conversation. It contains probably the most beloved verse that we'll get to next week, John three sixteen. 16. Uh, and we're going to look at this famous part of the conversation under three headings. Jesus and Nicodemus are conversing, and in their conversation, we see three things oppose one another. First, we're going to see ignorance versus knowledge. Then we'll see the earthly versus the heavenly. And lastly, we'll see seeing and dying versus beholding and living. Let's talk about ignorance versus knowledge first. Our text, after Jesus has told Nicodemus he must be born again, Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. Nicodemus is a teacher of Israel. He's, to quote D.A. Carson in his commentary, he's like the reverend professor doctor. He's versed in all of the Old Testament to the point Jesus can speak one line from the Torah that would seem obscure to us, and Nicodemus immediately knows chapter and verse. And he is an ignorant skeptic. He knows more Bible than you. He probably lived a more externally moral life than you live. Nicodemus, if he were alive today, he would be in a Bible-believing church, all caps. Uh, And let me assure you, in case you're wondering, he would vote just like you vote. Whatever that is. And he is not saved. So we need to remember it's not proximity, it is not voting patterns that makes one a Christian. It's not merely information, it's not the ability to pass Bible exams that makes you a Christian. It's not even feeling bad about doing bad stuff. All right, this, this was my story. Uh, I was raised in the church, uh, private Christian school, preschool to uh, to high school, and then private Christian college. I memorized Bible verses. In high school, I would go to serve at Long Beach Rescue Mission. I'd serve at Skid Row, and I had secret sin. But I'd even confess that sin occasionally. I always felt like a wretch, but I could never conquer sin. For me, it was lust and pornography, uh, and I would do all the Christian stuff, okay? I'd get X3 watch, I would tell other people, I would try really hard, but nothing would work because I was a slave 
to sin because I had not been born again because my heart was dead. It was a heart of stone. And I would never tell anyone, but I didn't love God. And we don't tell one another that because that's, that sheds light on the reality of how dead we are in our sins. But I had no true love for God. The gospel seemed nothing like good news to me because I still had a heart of stone. And I needed the spirit of God to cause my heart to be born again. And he did that. It was hearing Ephesians 1-4 preached at Reality Santa Barbara that even before the foundations of the world, God chose me in Christ that I should be holy and blameless before him. And I heard that and suddenly I knew and I believed the gospel. That Christ died for me in my place for my sins on the cross and he rose from the dead and I knew he had chosen to forgive me. And I repented. I put my trust and faith in Christ. And it was not immediate victory over sin, but there was a definitive start of slaying sin in my life by the Spirit of God. As Romans 8 says, all who are sons of all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the flesh, you will live. And so let's be honest right now. As we are studying Nicodemus, an ignorant skeptic, whether we want to go at it from a statistic point of view or simply having a biblically saturated worldview in mind, in this room right now, there are people who are not saved. This room is full of skeptics in a Bible-believing church with other people who vote like you. This room is full of skeptics. Now, some of us know that. Some of us know. We're like, yeah, I, I know I'm a skeptic. I know I don't actually believe Jesus is the Son of God who died for my sins, and that is all by trust in him and turning from my sin, I know I will be saved. Some of us know that. Some of us in this room, we don't realize that. We are self-deceived. You just, you don't know that you're not saved. You just have no love for God. The gospel doesn't seem like good news. And maybe you know the weight of sin on your back and always feeling bad, but you have never experienced the freedom of life in Christ. You have not received the testimony about Christ. And then some of us are genuinely Christians in doubting God's love. In this, for all of us, I want to encourage us to examine ourselves to see if we be in the faith, as the Apostle Paul encouraged us to do. And in doing that, don't, I don't want us so much to look just for a specific moment in time, but I want, us, want to encourage us to look for evidences of God's grace. Jesus said, a good tree will bear good fruit. And so I want to encourage you, I don't want to ask, do you feel like a tree? But rather I want to say, are you seeing fruit? Is there any fruit? by God's grace in your life. 
Are you bearing fruit like a tree? Listen, the bad news that there are people in this room who are not saved, who are deceived and not born again, is some of the best news we could ever deliver. Because we're going to see there is hope for you. The teacher of Israel, Nicodemus, said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Now, I want us to see this is not a new doctrine. The doctrine of being born again, of regeneration. It's not like in New Testament doctrine that God halfway through the Bible uh, shifted and became different. God is immutable. God is unchanging. He always is, was, and ever will be. D.A. Carson uh, commenting on the fact that Jesus says to Nicodemus, you're a teacher of Israel. This is what Jesus is trying to help us see, that nothing could make clear the fact that Jesus's teachings on the new birth was built on the teaching of the Old Testament. That is why he says to him, you're a teacher of Israel. You know the Old Testament scriptures, and you don't understand that you must be born again? And so God has always been a God of grace and mercy. We're the ones who just have been blind to it. That's how wretched and blind we are apart from Christ. And so he challenges Nicodemus. He says to him, truly, truly, which the word there is amen, amen, where we get our word amen. He's drawing attention, shining a spotlight on what he's about to say. He says, it should be enough for you to believe me. I speak and you should believe because you've seen the things that I've done. But in love and mercy, he's going to go on to reason with Nicodemus the skeptic. And as a note, Nicodemus, at the end of this conversation, appears to walk away unregenerate, not believing. But by the end of the Gospel of John, we see him become a believer. And so, if you're discouraged in evangelism, I want you to take heart that our witnessing, our conversations with unbelieving friends spouses, children, and coworkers, they are not in vain. It may be just like Nicodemus that God is using your conversations now to furnish an understanding that he will later give the gift of faith and understanding with. Our work is not in vain. It could be just like Nicodemus. Let's continue in the conversation. Jesus is going to bring up earthly and heavenly things. Verse 12, if I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the son of man. Now we need to ask the question, what does Jesus mean by earthly and heavenly? Well, earthly refers to the new birth. It is what must take place in mankind here on this earth in order, to, uh, in order to experience the life that is to come. In order to experience eternal life 
that Jesus is going to talk about, you need to experience this, a new birth. Carson points out that it's really likely Nicodemus uh, would have a big interest in in, uh, apocalyptic topics. That word apocalyptic means like end times, revealing what's going to happen at the end of the age. That's why Jesus, after Nicodemus says to him, I've seen you've done these signs. You're probably with God. Otherwise, you couldn't do these things. Jesus jumps the gun and says, if you want to come into my kingdom, you need to be born again. If you want to experience the kingdom at the end of the age, you must be born again. So Nicodemus has an interest in end time stuff. What will heaven be like? What's the afterlife in the new heavens and the new earth? What's it going to feel like? What's it going to be like? When's it going to come? How do I get there? And Jesus is saying to him, you want to know about the kingdom of God? You want to know about heaven? You don't believe me about entry into the kingdom. Nicodemus, you must be born again. Nicodemus wants to talk about what's it going to be like at the very end. How do I get into the kingdom? Jesus says, slow down. You need to be born again. In our own lives, we see this pop up all the time. We can obsess with stories about people going to heaven and coming back. We want to know what did they see there? What was that like there? Jesus here authoritatively speaks, and he says, no one's ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven. Listen to me about what heaven's like and how you get there. We can become consumed with end-time speculation about the finest points of eschatology. And here's the truth we need to hear. None of that matters unless you've been born again. Unregenerate people have always taken an interest in debate and in details about heaven. And just believing in God and just believing in heaven will never get you to heaven. And if that's all you believe, there is a God, there is an afterlife, if that's all you believe, you're not experiencing a single ounce of of God's inbreaking kingdom right now. You are still dead in your sins. And so we see here at Jesus' impetus that we must take God at his word. Jesus says, why would you believe me about heavenly things if you don't even believe me about earthly things? And in the immediate context, what he's talking about is the new birth. This must take place on earth if you ever have a hope for the age to come. But this also extends to believing all the God-breathed truth that God's Spirit had men write down in this book. And so I want to ask us, those who take the name of Christ upon ourselves, do you doubt God's word? Do you doubt what God says about gender, about sexual intimacy in its place, about the creation of the universe, about heaven and hell, about stories in his own word? Do you doubt them? 
not, and I'm not asking a simplistic question. I'm asking, and if you do, what are the reasons for your doubt? Is it because you believe, well, we're, we're more sophisticated today? Those Israelites, they just, they didn't really understand how things actually worked. Is it because another authority tells you that miracles can't happen? That clearly that, that's a story because those things don't happen in real life. Or only believe in the quote-unquote crucial miracles. Yeah, I believe Jesus rose from the dead. But I mean, Genesis 1 through 11, eh. If you don't believe what God, the Spirit, has said about earthly things, why do you think you'd accept what he, who is indivisible, says about heavenly things? Now, there's, there's some room. There's some room for some different points of uh, interpretation. But let me ask you, what's driving our theology and our interpretation of Scripture? Is it what God has truly revealed in his word, rightly understood? Or is it being accepted by our coworkers, being thought well of in this society? And isn't it odd, all the things we're tempted to believe the Bible doesn't actually say are all the biggest talking points that you appear to be a bigot about, if you believe. God knows how life works best All of his commandments are for human flourishing. We can trust him. So dear brothers and sisters, don't listen to the lies of the world. Listen to the voice of your shepherd. Even in today's reading in Matthew 12, Jesus is telling people they need to repent. They need to trust in him. And he's telling them what he's going to do in dying on the cross and raising from the dead. Do you know how he drives the point home? He brings up the story of Jonah. You can check this out for yourselves in Matthew chapter 12. Now, some of you may be aware, some of you aren't, but there's many who claim to be biblical scholars and say, we can't really believe the story of Jonah because, you know, people don't get swallowed by great fish. And really, like, an entire city turned to God. The language there is so poetic. Jesus says, Just as Jonah lied in the belly of a great whale, so must the Son of Man descend into the heart of the earth. A direct rhetorical parallel to our text in Scripture where Jesus is going to say, just as the serpent was lifted up in the desert, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. He says, do you believe me? Do you believe me? If not, the men of Nineveh will rise up against you in the judgment and it will be bad for you. Kevin DeYoung brilliantly points out, if Jesus is just using a fable here, it kind of loses, he loses his seriousness. He loses his point. If Jesus says, if you don't repent, it will be like the men of Rohan coming to judge you. No, these things actually happened. Don't have a lower view of Scripture than your Savior. We need to ask the question, why does Jesus have the authority? 
Well, because he's the prophesied one in all of Scripture. He says no one has uh, ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven. Here, he's referencing and quoting Proverbs 30, verse 4. The book of Proverbs is a book of wisdom. And how is, how is a young man to gain wisdom? And it's the fear of the Lord. But who's the one who is truly wise? Who's the wisest person? And in Proverbs 30, they're trying to understand. The author says, who has ascended to heaven and come down? Who's gathered the winds in his fists? Who has wrapped up the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name and what is his son's name? Surely you know. Jesus says, I am he. And then he uses another title for himself. He says, the son of man, which comes out throughout scripture, but one place in particular is in the uh, revelatory uh, prophecy of Daniel chapter 7. Where Daniel says, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. Jesus is saying, I'm the one who descended from heaven. So I can truly tell you what it's like and how to get there. I am the apocalyptic son of man. And here's what you need to understand from the Old Testament, Nicodemus. You remember that story about the snakes in the wilderness? Surely Nicodemus had seen this story on the pages of Scripture. But we're going to see with the story Jesus tells him that there's a difference between seeing and beholding. John three fourteen and 15. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Let's turn in our Bibles to Numbers chapter 21. It's the fourth book in the Bible. It was normal in those days for people that would study the law to memorize the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. So Nicodemus immediately knows the story and what he's speaking about. And where we pick up our story, this is after the Exodus where uh, Israel is wandering in the desert. That's the story of Numbers. They're wandering in the desert. Uh, In the Hebrew Bible, the title for Numbers is actually in the desert or in the wilderness, which is a much better title but it's 2,000 years in. Can't really change it now, right? Uh, So chapter 21, verses four through nine. From Mount Hor, they set out by the the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way because people used to be like that back then. (laughs) And the people spoke against God and against Moses Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water. We loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you, 
Pray to the Lord that he may take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look to the bronze serpent and live. The people rebel against God. He's rescued them out of the land of slavery and they rebel and complain against God and so God sends snakes. I hate snakes. (laughs) And thankfully, his judgment runs its course. It fulfills the purpose for which he set it out to do, which is the people crying out to God. And listen, this is the way throughout scripture that it always goes. God doesn't make things hard for people because he gets some kind of twisted pleasure out of it. But rather, he will, in his wisdom, discipline and judge his people because experientially, as we know God, as C.S. Lewis says, whispers to us in good times, but he shouts to us in our pain. And so the people realize the rebellion against a good and holy God and they cry out to him. And he gives them a solution. He says, Moses, take a serpent, put it on a pole, a bronze serpent, an image of the thing that bit people and was killing them. And whoever would turn their gaze upon the bronze figure on a pole lifted up would be healed of the venomous bite and would live. Now, the crazy thing about this story that R.C. Sproul helped me see is that some people bitten by the snake refused to look upon the pole and live. They wouldn't trust God at his word. Some of them were that skeptical. And Jesus reminds Nicodemus, the skeptic, of this story. He says, Nicodemus, I must be lifted up. Now the wording Jesus is using here, it has a double meaning. He must be raised up, yes, but he also must be magnified, made much of. That just as that snake on, was lifted up upon a pole, so must the Son of Man be raised up on a cross, magnified, seen for who he truly is on a cross. His exaltation would be his crucifixion. R.C. Sproul says he must be lifted up on a cross He must become the substitute serpent, if you will. He had to take on himself the sting of death. He had to take on himself the poison of sin on the cross. He who knew no sin became sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He himself bore 
our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Have you beheld this? Have you looked upon Christ and lived? Or have you just seen and so are still dead in your sins? Nicodemus, he only saw the story of the serpent. He never saw the underlying truth that it was only God's provision that could save the people from their sickness. He didn't see how sick he truly was. The good news for us is that bronze snake, it could heal of the venomous bite. But all of us, we have a much worse condition than they did. We've all sinned against a holy God and are dead in our sins. And we don't love him and we don't desire him and we don't seek after him. And it's not just a physical health problem, it's a spiritual death problem. We need God to make us alive again in nothing less than the Son of God dying in our place for our sins can save us. But he did just that. So how do we know if we've beheld him? Well, I want to offer assurance by looking for evidences of God's grace in our life again. Let's look at some of these. These are evidences of grace that God has done a work in our hearts, that we have been born again. The first thing is true love for God. John 14, verse 15. If you love me, you will obey my commandments. Now, don't get that wrong. Don't get it reversed that if you obey God's commandments, you love him. Because everyone born in sin is dead in their sins and must be born again. And you can't keep God's commandments apart from being born again and having the spirit alive inside of you. So if you're freaking out right now, I don't keep God's commandments. I don't love him. Hear the good news. God in his love came for you. Trust in what Christ has done. And if you are a Christian, the way we show our new life is we believe God's commandments are for our good, and so we live a new life now, expressed in true love for God and obedient living. But let's even stop short of obedient living. Do you love God? With no fear of recrimination, would you say in your heart of hearts, honestly, Yes, I love him. I love Christ. Or has this always felt like you're never good enough and you can't make it? True love for God is an evidence of his grace in our hearts. Secondly, living to righteousness. This isn't a self-righteousness. This is living for the glory of God in the good of others' righteousness. Not compared to, I'm better than them, but I've received Christ's righteousness imputed to me, and now I practically want to live a righteous life. So others can see God, so my neighbor can uh, experience 
love and know what God is like through my imperfect right now life. Verse Peter 2.24, he himself bore our sins in his body that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Thirdly, along with this comes death of sin in your life. Death of sin in your life. Romans 8 tells us, as we've already mentioned, that all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. And if we live according to the flesh, we will die. But if by the power of the Spirit we put to death the deeds of the body, we will live. 1 Corinthians 10, this is fascinating. 1 Corinthians 10, verses 6 through 13. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it, was, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. Well, what does all this have to do with the sermon we're talking about? What does it have to do with us? Verse 9, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, these things happened to them as an example, but were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. This story was meant to show us Christ and as an example of how to live, to remember in our grumbling and our complaining, oh no, the Israelites did that and it went so bad for them. I don't want to complain. I don't want to grumble. Christ has given me a new life and a new heart to take heed. You who have been born again, sons and daughters of God, it wasn't because we just made better decisions than other people. We need to take heed lest we fall. We could fall tomorrow if we rely on our own strength. We must put to death sin by the power of the Spirit in our life. As you examine your own life, don't ask, am I perfect? I can give you the answer, no, you're not. Have I killed all the sin in my life? No, you have not. But has there been real, genuine new life growth, new desires within your heart, incremental but actually there? If so, it's an evidence of God's grace in your life. Fourthly, a willingness to admit you deserve to go to hell and that God didn't owe you anything But in his mercy, he showed you grace. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. 
Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. The Apostle Paul said, if we don't, if we don't understand that it, it was, it's, it's me, I'm the one that should go to hell, and God doesn't owe me anything, you've never understood his grace. If you think God kind of owes me one, that wouldn't be fair if I went to hell. You don't understand grace. Grace is undeserved. Fairness is going to hell for our sins. But God is gracious. And so trust in him. And let us all walk in that kind of humility. Not hatred of ourselves, but love of God that he would show mercy to people like us. Lastly, is the cross everything to you? Paul in two places said, once I desired to know nothing except Christ and him crucified. He said that the end of his letter to the Galatians Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Is the cross your treasure? Not ecstatic spiritual experiences, not the latest Christian fad and Amazon bestseller, not some lie of the prosperity gospel that God will make you rich and healthy always, but the cross of Jesus Christ where he bore your sins, where he absorbed the wrath of God, where he who never knew a sin became sin in your place. Is that your treasure? Is that your everything? That Christ, the Son of God, loved you and gave his life for you. Is that your greatest treasure? three closing things for how we can carry this with us. If what we need for eternal life is to look upon the cross and believe, then the pressure to save others falls off of us. One, because that's simple. Look upon Christ and believe. And two, you know that you weren't the definitive factor of you being saved. You know that Christ saved you. If you carry around the weight of I must save others, you will crumble because you can't save anyone. You couldn't save yourself. You were dead in your sins. Once you realize it is the preaching of the gospel is the means by which God saves people, telling them what he has done and accomplished, the good news of it suddenly the weight starts to fall off. And yeah, we got to deal with the fear of man. We got to deal with all kinds of stuff. But you know enough if you've been saved to tell someone else how to be saved. Look upon Christ and live. Trust in him. Secondly, if what we need is to behold Christ and live, then how we read the Bible, and I'll add in how we listen to sermons will be radically different. It becomes about God and it becomes about Christ and not simply about me. 
when I open my Bible. He's my treasure, so I want to I know more about him. I don't just need my own fix to make me feel better. I need to see him, and in there I have fullness of joy. Lastly, if what we need is the new birth for spiritual life, then we can put the emphasis first on what God has done for us and worshiping him in response and not what we have done for God and wondering if it's ever enough. This is the true freedom of the Christian life, the good news and accomplishment of the gospel. That unlike every other religion and philosophy in the world, it's not about what you must do to appease God or work your way up to God or realize you are God, but what God has done in descending down to us and bringing us out of the grave and up into newness of life in his spirit. So now, church, let's worship the Son of Man who was lifted up that we might receive eternal life. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, far be it from us to boast in anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which we were crucified to the world and the world to us. God, I pray that if by your grace and your light anyone in this room has realized they have been self-deceived and are not in the faith that they would trust in the cross of Christ. And you would cause them to be born again. They would repent and receive forgiveness and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and that times of refreshing would come upon them. Lord, I pray for those who doubted that you are the Son of God, would they believe today? Because you rose from the dead. Because you're coming again. And Lord, for those of us who struggle to believe your love, would we not look first at our deeds and what we can offer you? Would we look to what has been offered? Christ as he's clothed in his gospel. sing to you will we experience freedom and life Lord Jesus we praise you that you came to earth that you lived a perfect life that you died on a cross in our place that you rose from the dead and you have ascended on high and you are seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty that you rule and you reign and one day you will come again You are over all. You are in all. Would you be everything to us? We ask that you be magnified. Not so much that you would appear to be bigger than we see you to be, but that we would see you as you truly are. Creator of the universe. Redeemer of humanity. Lover of our souls. Thank you for the cross. Pray this all in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.
communions here. Uh, throughout history, sometimes there's been swings where people took communion really seriously and when they would have sinned in a week, they wouldn't come and take it because they felt unworthy. But I want to remind you, if you feel unworthy, but you dare to hope in Christ, come and receive the bread, his body given for you, his the cup, his blood poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. And know it is what Christ has done for you, not what you have done for him that makes you right. There will be a prayer team on the sides. If you have questions, if you have uh, skeptical thoughts that you need to pray through, come and do that. The carpets are here to take postures of praise. Let's sing to the one who has been lifted up and receive eternal life from him.